right, here we are. From Chains to Change, I am DJ Bruja and am your host. And here we are today, uh, early 2022, and we've got a lot to do. But today we've got a really cool, interesting guest, uh, a man I met, I don't know, about, about three, four years ago. I don't know, how much, somewhere around there. About 19, 2019. Yeah, and uh, I was like, oh, this this dude is, uh, you know, he's locked up. He's getting a PhD at Tulane. I was like, oh. What's up with this dude? <laughs> we need to, we need to talk a little bit. <laughs> so and it just so happens, uh, you know, not what it was a couple weeks ago. Mm-hmm. I get an email. It's like, oh, first published piece here. Uh, mm. You know, higher education and justice impacted students colon toward a radical reimagination. Reimagining. Sorry, uh, Aaron S. Corbett. And Jared M. Wall. Jared Wall, how you doing, man? Welcome aboard. Hey, great, great. Uh, glad to be here. Appreciate the invitation. Just uh, looking forward to the conversation, Bruce. Thank S- you. Sweet. Well, so um, let's uh, let's first let's just kind of get into like, so you're your PhD student, mm-hmm. right? You mm-hmm. are. Wh- where are you at with that? Yeah. So I. Um, at Tulane, I'm in a PhD program called City Culture Community, and it's an interdisciplinary program, um, and it's a five-year program. I am halfway through. I just finished 2.5 years. Yep. All right. Cool. Well, around here, you know, people that do time in Angola, they'll, they'll, they'll count out, like, I did this many years, <laughs> months, days, and hours, and as Jibba Jabba said last week, seconds. So <laughs> you might need to get that 2.5 down to a science in, in New Orleans. By the end of it, I very likely might, uh, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so you know, you're, you're yeah. a former incarcerated dude. Yes. You did a bunch of time in Indiana. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I served uh, 26 years in Indiana. I was incarcerated as a junior in high school, so I was 17, and I was released when I was 43, so mm-hmm. in uh, 2015. All right, and then you, so you you got a you got a, a bachelor's while incarcerated. Uh, several degrees actually while I was incarcerated. It's kind of unfortunate to uh, be on the tail end of let's say the golden era of mm. rehabilitation, particularly with higher education and prison. So you know, I went in. I didn't have a high school diploma, so I got my GD, uh, got associate. Got two bachelors, and by the time I walked out, I had a master's. Mm-hmm. Um, and then one more thing I kind of did then as well um, that's kind of put me in the higher ed spaces uh, for prison since I've been out. But when I was inside, I ran as a clerk the college program for over 13 years. How many cats were in that program, roughly? Oh, goodness. Well, we it, it varied over the years according to policy and space. Mm-hmm. And at one point when we were the largest, we had, oh, my goodness, about 164 people. Oh, wow. Uh, then it went back down to about 75, which was a little more manageable, actually, but a uh, robust program, on-site program for years through Ball State University, which if anyone's a David Letterman fan, that's his own oh, yeah. mm-hmm. Wait, Ball State, what, racers? Ball State? Cardinals. Cardinals, uh, Yes, yes, very fearsome uh, yeah, mascot. Mur- Murray State racers, I think. <laughs> my, my NCAA uh, skill set is, okay. is, uh, is waning. But uh, so... So was that how many folks were in your facility, or that was a statewide situation? No, 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 no. That was uh, just at the – it was a maximum security facility where I was mm-hmm. at. started out – it was uh, Indiana Reformatory, later Pendleton Correctional Facility. It was an institution that was about 1,600 people. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, they had – Ball State University had sites really throughout the whole state. They kind of um, were one of the main presences uh, for higher education or prison in Indiana for a long time. That's cool. You don't really hear too much about Ball State. Shout out to Ball State. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you hear about, like, the Hudson uh, Link up in New York and, yeah. you know, a few other, you know, um, College Community Fellowship now mm-hmm. has their own program they're starting out. Uh, but like you said, I mean, now we're kind of into this this golden era 
that mm-hmm. some of us didn't <laughs> didn't get the benefit from. But you know, I, I think with a lot of the work uh, that we do, and you know, as Norris always talks about, like with Supreme Court cases, even. You know, the, the yeah. person whose case wins doesn't always get the benefit of the win. Oh, wow. Right. You know, it just helps like the next next people that come along. Indiana, uh, to put in there, is a little unusual. OK, so we're dealing with 1994, you know, the Clinton's crime bill mm-hmm. actually discontinued the Pell Grant. So, yeah. so many programs throughout the nation were dealing with like 95 of the programs, percent of the programs just died out. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, Indiana was unusual in the sense that they continued with state grants. So it wasn't until Mitch Daniels um, discontinued the state grants for higher education in prison, and that was probably 2012 or so. So okay. Indiana had uh, really, from the 94 period all the way through 2012, had really uh, a good presence of college education in prisons. Nice. Must be, we can thank Bobby Knight for that, perhaps? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so I just, you know, before we, we yeah, get into some yeah. of the, the, the interesting um you know, topics that that, mm-hmm. I, that I wanted to talk about um, from your paper. And we can kind of spin off, of course, in a million ways. But um, I really need to know, like, in in the pantheon of, like, stars and best or whatever, mm-hmm. where does the movie Hoosiers rank? Oh, good gosh. I didn't watch that for so many years. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's... It's interesting just because Hoosiers, you know, basketball is such a tradition in Indiana. Okay, I mean, you know, I mean, my uncle was a basketball coach. My dad was a basketball coach. I grew up, you know, my grandparents probably knew more about basketball than most people. I mean, I grew up playing even though I'm like five foot nothing. Uh, Okay. (laughs) So, you know, I mean, it's just, it is. It's one of the traditions, kind of like football is down here in the South. Well, you got John Williams was the, the, did the soundtrack. Hoosiers is one of my favorite movies. I love, I also love the, uh, you know, the kind of, the redemption story, the coach, mm. the, uh, you know, the underdog story. I mean, this is something that I think those of us who've been locked up can really, um, you know, can appreciate. And, and I think your paper actually really touches on, um, you know, this issue of like people having to kind of come mm. up on their own. And so what you did was you guys mm-hmm. did, you looked at like five other people's papers basically and kind of consolidate them yeah it was a it was a special issue for the american behavioral scientist and it was on carceral education mm-hmm. and also the kind of uh you know the pathways to uh, incarceration the, the so-called you know uh school to prison pipeline so mm-hmm. it was kind of a little bit of both yeah and so i mean mm-hmm. you know one of the interesting things that that I'm probably going to start using, uh, mm-hmm. which I guess is the point of writing something, you know, so people, other people can use it, you know, <laughs> is this difference between, you know, when people are at risk, right? Yes. And uh, and I really liked how, and I guess, you know, I'm behind on the literature perhaps, mm-hmm. uh, but this risk objects thing, right? Mm-hmm. Like you are the risk. Right. <laughs> and, you know, and, and we hear this a lot about, you know, oh, they, they predict how many prison beds to build based on how many whatever, like kids getting free school lunch or, you know, other kinds of metrics where it's like, we mm-hmm. anticipate you will be a problem. So therefore yeah. you're now a risk. Can you want to talk a little about the risk object kind yeah, of it's, problem here? It's interesting for one, it, it, you know, a lot of this thinking started with uh, public health. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, you know, like the example in the paper here, it's like, okay, so many times now we aren't treating disease. Mm-hmm. Instead, we are treating risk. So for the example that we used here, um, for instance, you know, people, once you cross a certain threshold, then you have to start taking statins. You have, you have things that start working uh, 
helping to get your cholesterol lower, not because you've had disease at this point, but to prevent what can happen because of that in the mm-hmm. future, you know, different heart conditions. So um, that's one thing when you look at like the sociology of health or public health, they talk about how so much now we're treating uh, prevention. You know, mm-hmm. what we're doing is treating risk versus actual disease. Well, unfortunately, this is kind of this risk assessment has kind of uh, seeped over this thinking into schools, into universities. Mm-hmm. Um so there are several factors, however, that are involved. So risk, okay, so they're preventing, they're, they're treating the possibility of something, okay, but, uh, you know, this is such a loaded conversation because how are people perceiving risk? How is risk constructed? Mm-hmm. Okay, and then this is where it gets scary. It's because, okay, what we're finding is is this whole uh, school-to-prison pipeline um, Black and brown students are disproportionately getting put on this pathway. It's like versus, auto risk versus their auto risk exactly. And so we have we have several things going on here. Mm-hmm. Um, one is uh, we talk about you know is adultification. Mm-hmm. Okay, and this is kind of goes back to just really uh, adolescence is kind of a white privilege. Mm-hmm. Adolescence is allowed for white uh, boys and girls, but yet when it comes to black and brown, it's not. And there's a whole history involved there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then two, it's like. So, so how that pans out in school is if the white uh, kid ends up making a mistake, it's overlooked and kids mm-hmm. will be kids, right? Yeah, college you know? students as well, right? And college students, hello, as well, right? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, but yet when it's a black or brown student, then it's like, okay, for one, they are perceived to be older than they are, which means mm-hmm. therefore they are perceived to have more culpability than a child or adolescent should have. Okay, that's why we have a whole juvenile system because yeah. lesser culpability. Um, but, you know, so then the problem there is then it becomes down to harsher punishments. Mm-hmm. And this puts them on the prison, uh, you know, the school to prison pipeline much sooner. And, you know, so part of it is kind of like the whole uh, insider outsider psychology, too. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things is um, a fundamental attribution here. All that comes down to is for you or those you consider part of your group, you make, you know, excuses according to circumstance. Yeah, well, police hey, officers. Ex- it, yeah. was, it was sketchy. It was dark out. Yeah. You know, how, do you, how are you supposed to really know? Exactly. You just got to make priorities like you need to get home at night, shoot first, ask questions later. It, you know, it was more of the circumstances. Everybody mm-hmm. was yelling and screaming, da, 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 da. Yeah. But no Where, one else gets that excuse. And no one else gets it, right? Instead, it's an attribution. It's like, oh, they're, they did this because they are like that. Yeah. This is the kind they are. So what we're dealing with with risk perception then, so part of it is it's like they're getting an unfair assessment right there. But the risk comes into also then it's like also – the child is looked at as, oh, well, this is going to be your future anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, we are criminalizing the kid, unfortunately. It's like, oh, if you're not this now, you're going to be later. Mm-hmm. And then so I guess this adds another dimension into the risk assessment that, you know, children basically are being not only looked at as older, having more culpability than they should have as children or adolescents. Mm-hmm. But then also it's like, oh, well, it's like we know the acorn is going to grow up to be an oak. Yeah. And, you know, unfortunately, that's. You know, yeah. looking at them as a, a criminalized future or not finishing school anyway, da, da, da. Yeah. I mean, as a parent, I, I, I get that mm. vibe sometimes that that people that work in the system are, are making some kind of assumptions or whatever. And I literally had uh, – so someone made an anonymous tip about my daughter being uh, potentially unsupervised. And so then I get wow. this investigation that comes about. And on the paperwork, it says, you know, abuse, neglect, right? So those mm. have like – actual definitions yeah right so like theoretically you're not investigating like whether i'm like a good parent bad parent you know whether i Mm -hmm. feed kira healthy food or not right like it should be like 
rise to like a, a certain level, a threshold of mm-hmm. investigation, you know? I mean, there's some parents that are they're really in, in a rough spot and therefore the kids are as well. That's not us, right? Mm-hmm. So she's doing all this investigation and I, and I, you know, finally I'm pushing back saying like, you know, what is the, uh, you know, what's the definition of a neglect here? And she didn't really know it. So here she is working for the wow. system. She's, she's <clears throat> running this investigation. She already spoke with my daughter and didn't even tell me and says that she has the authority to do so, basically just blanket authority under, under the law. Wow. And she's fresh on the job, doesn't know the law, and then literally ends up uh, saying that it was, well, the unsupervised is neglect. And I was like, well, how much unsupervised? She's like, well, over an hour. And I'm like, oh, so if I go on a date, should I get a babysitter to babysit my kid who might also be babysitting someone else's kid because she's mm. over 12 and can babysit? And, you know, like, right, so, right. you know, if I go to the grocery store, do I need a babysitter? Like, you know, and it's like mm-hmm. this, what you're talking about, this like risk thing of just thinking yep. that we can put the super bike helmet slash sumo suit around everything <laughs> and no one will ever get hurt. Bubble wrap. Yeah. yeah. Let's just bubble wrap our society. <laughs> and it's like, y'all didn't grow up in the 80s, did you? Yeah. You, know? you well, must have grown up in the 2000s. <laughs> well, one thing then how this plays out and it's um, for all of us who are formerly incarcerated, trying to come out and uh, be admitted to universities. Mm-hmm. Okay. So this is a huge situation then with universities, the box. The risk. You know, risk assessment. Oh, my Again. God. You're going to risk our reputation. Yeah. You know, how do you bubble wrap a whole university? You know, so, but, and this is what they're trying to do ultimately with the felon questions. Well, they conceal, literally do conceal mm-hmm. all the sexual assaults and like, you know, other like yeah. uh, robberies and, and things that happen amongst their students because they don't want that crime stat to come out that like, oh, there's lots of crime amongst these like 18 to 24 year old kids getting intoxicated. So exactly. So uh, there's been uh, some great studies that have shown that the universities that actually have the felon box, they have the, Mm -hmm. you know, you know, it's always, you know, um, have you ever been kicked out of any institutions, you know, schools or institutions? Do you have misdemeanor? Do you have felony? Mm -hmm. And the universities that ask those questions versus the ones that do not have no different crime rates. Yeah. Okay. So here's this huge process they haven't set in for risk assessment but yet it's making no difference in the total crime rate. So what this tells us is those universities that are accepting formerly incarcerated individuals, um, it's not the formerly incarcerated individuals that are making a difference in crime rates. Yeah, of course not. You know, and, and that's one thing that's just so – several things going on here. Right. Um, first of all, I think people, when it comes to admissions, they need to recognize that for a non-traditional student who's come through – uh, the path, uh, traditional pathway. So basically, a formerly incarcerated student who's jumped through all these extra hoops mm-hmm. to basically get in the same seat in front of a missions committee that a privileged kid has had. Right. That takes a lot of determination. Yeah, they have no, they have no appreciation for that. They, I think Sean Hopwood, yep. I think, really nailed it um, mm-hmm. in Tara Simmons's situation in trying to get uh, barred. Okay. As an attorney, wow. and and he he said, and you know, I might be messing this up. Maybe mm-hmm. Tara said it for herself, but Sean was like, uh, both of them formerly incarcerated. For those that don't know, and, and Tara Sims is now an elected state legislator in the state of Washington. Um, and you know, when it came down to the rationale, like, is she good enough now, right, mm-hmm. and all that, and it was like, do you realize that if Tara Simmons was the same person that she was back when she had uh, addiction issues? She wouldn't have been able to accomplish all this Hello. year yep. after year, day after day, you know, and, and graduate and, and get these degrees and, and mm-hmm. sit for the bar and take this exam and pass and whatever. And now you're going to do character and fitness on basically you're really judging character and fitness of her years ago. Yeah. 
right? And so each time that we have to explain our past, they're really just like re-judging our past. They're not judging us for who we are now. Yeah, it, well, it, it, exactly. And it's um, that's that whole biographic mediation. I love that phrase. I hadn't heard that before. Yeah, yeah. And the, so, mm-hmm. and that was um, I noticed that was uh, Michelle Daniel Jones. Yes, yes. Is that so? Was she the woman that I'm thinking of who? Um, mm-hmm. From Indiana. And then she ended up, like, getting accepted to Harvard or yeah. something. And then it got, uh-huh. like, pulled. And then she yes. went to NYU, I think. So, exactly. Mm-hmm. So, uh, she was accepted at Harvard. And then, basically, they, they not basically, they reneged mm-hmm. and withdrew that uh, acceptance. Uh, made a huge deal. Front page of New York Times. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Angela Davis uh, reached out to her. Michelle Alexander did. Like, over 100 professors at Harvard signed a complaint letter. Um, you know, but then she ended up, uh, she's at MIU right now, uh, right. Should be dissertating right now. Cool. Um, so yeah, she's, uh, again, one of my homies there. We are actually the uh, same academic family in the sense of, uh, we had some of the same mentors. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, uh, good friend there doing great work. Um, but yeah, yeah. And this is, so the phrase that she's come up with or, you know, kind of borrowed yeah. actually from another person, but using it within the context of, uh, college admittance. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, it's like. And here we are often consulting each other, you mm-hmm. know, and then each one teach one of like, well, how do you explain, let's say you had an addiction, in, you know, years and years ago? Or how do you explain yeah. you hurt somebody years and years ago? How do you explain all these different things and like who you are? And, and I really like how, um, I don't know if it was Jason Hernandez or, or someone else was really talking about how we like lift up like as you were saying the, mm-hmm. the the positives that we have and i i, I put that in you know in a play that i wrote you know what uh this dude uh old school talking to new jack and new jack's guy to the big house a, a book i did and then we adapted to a play voice of the voiceless but part of it is like trying to get people to, to realize the the skill set you develop while you're yes. in prison <clears throat> yeah. uh wow a lot of points here great um first of all yeah so basically the one article you're talking about it was called hustle and part of the hustle is, is it's basically like instead of always having a deficit model mm-hmm. of like, oh, well, those of us who've been incarcerated, we're coming in with these lacks or these stigma against us, which mm-hmm. is true. We do, you know, but it was saying, hey, uh, let's make let's look at this from an anti-deficit lens, yeah. you know. So basically a lot of other people call it strength based, but this tradition was called anti-deficit model. Mm-hmm. And so what it comes down to is it, in about like what we're talking about um, – Part of it is it's like, you know, wow, we have a lot of strengths. We have a lot of um, uh, things we've learned in our life that we can't necessarily put on a resume, but nonetheless have made us uh, competitive, have Mm -hmm. made us um, empowered, have made us, you know. So this article Hustle is trying to highlight a lot of these. And it comes more from the Latinx tradition called funds of knowledge, which is just that, hey, there's cultural knowledge Mm -hmm. um, that may not be academic. Um, but it's what people have learned from. So this hustle is kind of following that. It's like, oh, well, we had to hustle in our lives and these same skills of making connections with people, mm-hmm. of learning how to find money, you know, which once you get to university, how to find funding, mm-hmm. you know, um, how to find a community. You know, so these are things that people having to grow up learning to hustle had to do. But once I got on university, same skills they used to be able to do it there. Yeah. You know, it's funny when, so when there was, you know, some, some critique about whether I should be in law school or not, mm-hmm. um, you know, there were some people like wondering if I could handle the stress of law school and like anyone who knew me and, you know, I was, I've spoken to this day, you know, <laughs> law school is literally the easiest time of my life. <laughs> like the easiest time, like easier right. than being a toddler because I was, you know, <laughs> in foster care and all that kind of stuff, oh, you know, gosh, and, okay. and, um, and, 
and I had a ball. Mm-hmm. And you can ask, you know, my 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 homies like Al and Tony and everybody else, you know, and they'd be like, "Oh yeah, Bruce like was you know living it up." Like the level of stri- the hardest part literally was just having my daughter so far away mm-hmm. and like having right. to fly, fly her down. And well, and she couldn't even fly alone at the time. I'd have to fly up. Her mom would like hand her to me in, in the freaking gate. I'd fly oh, right back. Right. All this stuff that I was doing, mm-hmm. you know, on a shoestring. But in the bigger picture, able to take these zero percent loans, these zero interest loans, the academia was easy. There was Mm -hmm. no stress in my mind Mm -hmm. whatsoever. And part of that's because, like, this was not the hardest thing I've been through. Yeah. You know, there you are. I mean, (laughs) at all strength based. I mean, one thing is they had the same concern with me. Um, when mm-hmm. it came to me for my interviews, mm-hmm. okay? And, and this is where actually uh, narratives like Shawshank Redemption, as great a movie as it is, has done us a disservice because <laughs> they all think we get out more Brooks, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, in, in the sense that, oh, we can't handle the, the real, so-called right. real world. Well, it's pretty real inside. There's a lot of stress that you have to deal with inside, a lot of, lot of different hats you have to juggle there, too. I mean, mm-hmm. but it's just, again, uh, the misperceptions people have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that, you know, we're, we're starting to, like, really kind of, you know, turn some of these narratives around. Mm-hmm. And, and, I, and I think you, you definitely point out, um, you know, something about, you know, as we try to get this critical mass of people and, and get some transformations, yes. you know, we really need across the board, but you're pointing out in the admissions process, mm-hmm. folks that can appreciate that cultural, um, you know, elevation, right? And what we can bring to campus. Yeah. You uh, know? A, a couple things, I think. Um, I'll talk about critical mass, but first, I think uh, the emissions, I'm going to talk about that a second. Again, with risk assessment. Mm-hmm. I mean, so what it comes down to realistically is the Willie Horton thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, and I feel like those of us in higher education and prison have not, um, the do, you know, in this work, haven't really, f- to some degree, haven't really faced that yet. And to meet it directly, okay, mm-hmm. to be able to address it. What do you mean by having like having faced that yeah. criticism face on, yes. or it's just um, all kind of like shadowy gossipy? Um, because we're fighting to try to get the ban the box. We're trying mm-hmm. to, you know, but when we're looking at risk assessment, it's the fact that okay. So for me, as much as I'm talking about Ball State University mm-hmm. and much, I had planned for years before my release to get out and go to their counseling psychology mm-hmm. PhD program. Uh, again, I received three degrees from them inside, ran their program inside for over 13 years. Mm-hmm. When I got out, they denied me right away. Mm. Second year, I thought, well, they said, wait a year. You just got out. So, hey, okay, what do I do? I just worked for a year, went back. Second year, applied again. They said, denied me again. And they said, we will not review you again. Mm-hmm. I kept pursuing, you know, by this, second, by this time, I was in another master's program. But um, third year, I finally just went back to one and answer. Mm-hmm. And they finally broke it down. They said, look, you're too highly publicized. Your case and it's too local. Mm-hmm. OK, what they said is, you know, let's basically it came down to they were afraid that some kids parents would, would call in and make a complaint that it would become a large media issue. Mm-hmm. OK, versus that was more of their fear versus me actually doing something. So but the Willie Horton, of course, is a situation where they give somebody some rhythm, some play uh, leniency. Then that individual does something, and then the public blow up on them yeah. instead. So it's really that hypothetical risk, always you know, them looking twenty steps ahead, that uh, ends up causing the problems in the emissions. I mean, if we want to go by factual basis, we have the studies showing crime rates are no different, mm-hmm. right? But it ends up just that that small likelihood yeah. of that. Um, so for one, in higher ed, I don't feel like we've really faced that, okay, to make mm-hmm. a, a good uh, cause against that. And I feel like we're dancing around that a little bit. I feel like that's one thing we need to do. Uh, 
Yeah. I'll, I'll leave it at that. Well, and I, I think this, the sad thing, you know, in in the, the situation you're describing, you know, mm-hmm. is that whether it be Ball State or someone else, they're not actually embracing the issues around, you know, the subjects of rehabilitation, reentry, yeah. assimilation, forgiveness, you know, the, none. Of, they yep. don't want to deal with those questions, right? They want to deal with like, okay, will people like just look the other way? Mm-hmm. And I've found that, you know, one of the more valuable, so it seems, you know, contributions to other people's uh, kind of like awareness and such is by knowing me or knowing what I did or any, you know, they don't even need the details of, mm-hmm. of it, but just knowing that like the whole prison process, et cetera, is they've you told me they've had to kind of confront those issues mm-hmm. and think about how they feel about that because it's like right there in front of them. And, you know, one of my heartbreaks is, you know, Tulane Law School, which I love so much. I mean, I'm so it seems like I'm persona non grata over there, you know, even though like I've reached out with the olive branch, uh, you know, I've I've assisted so many uh, of the of of uh, Tulane Law uh, grads and like employment and networking and all these other things. Uh, professors even that I've that I've uh, at times given assistance to and um, but then just to be like you know they, they the blowback sort of burn their finger so much mm-hmm. and for them to like literally want to fire the woman who let me in who took that chance yeah and it's really uh, it's kind of it's it's sad but then here they are with a, like a, a women's uh, incarceration clinic Right, and then they got the Nukem program, you know, uh, over at, at, in you know in the undergrad mm-hmm. facility. They have all these things going on, but then like, you know, me being the the persona non grata because I just sort of maybe came a few years too early or something, you know. It, I, it's so. So with Tulane, even with me, I mean, it's a situation. Uh, uh, frankly, uh, because of your situation was so public. Uh, the, in, you know, there's so much in the publicity there that um, they fear a little bit that it could happen with me too. Mm-hmm. So much that they've come to me and uh, talked to me about it. Um, like, what would you do if this happened? Mm-hmm. And uh, also, <laughs> uh, I'm not supposed to know, but I know I'm being monitored uh-huh. at somewhere in the hierarchy. Uh, yeah. Okay. And so it, it's interesting, though, we say these universities, Ball State, even um, Tulane really don't know how to handle this. But uh, take it a step further, Bruce. I don't feel like our society really is doing a good job. I mean, particularly with violent felons. So in the work of higher education, in prison even, where they're trying to include the voices of formerly incarcerated, directly impacted, those who had higher education inside, so many people just want what we call the nannies. Mm. You know, the non-violent offender, the non-sex offender, the non-anything that makes them uncomfortable. That's what Mm -hmm. they want, right? And, you know, but then really having to deal with the fact of like, okay, wow, a horrible violent crime uh, when someone's a kid or so many years ago. And Mm -hmm. again, this isn't a static state. Unfortunately, admissions committees feel like, what if I walk in a room, they need to jump under the table? I mean, I mean, come on, I was a a kid with a lot of props when this happened, but they don't know how to really understand this, it seems, unfortunately. And at least like a drug offender or, and again, uh, uh, someone with addiction issues where they're incarcerated, they can say, hey, I was clean 15 years. Violent crime, that doesn't work. You can't say anything like that, right? Yeah. And Well, I, I think it, it kind of comes down to things like, for instance, you know, I don't need to know how to dump the trash because mm. it's sort of like not my job. Mm-hmm. You know, I appreciate the fact that someone comes by in the middle of the night and, and takes my trash away, right? Yeah. Like, and so we have these people who are making these these decisions, yep. right? We have so many people making making like opportunity decisions, as you point out in the paper, mm-hmm. who 
it's not, you know, they, they probably would rather say it ain't my job because now, you know, the people who maybe are more equipped to deal with these things right. are going to be, who knows, like sociologists or, or, or faith leaders, mm-hmm. you know, they're going to more want to delve into like kind of the, the human spirit and, you know, and, and that the, the, the changing component of who we are as humans, right? The philosophers amongst us. And so you have all these people who would rather just kind of flip the switch, you know, red or black. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, but they're they're making these these discretionary decisions. And we see it a lot in housing. We see it well, in jobs. Mm-hmm. And and we really, you know, the yes. good news is we're 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 moving that frontier, mm-hmm. you know, and we really just have to be part of that conversation and keep it moving. I, and, you know, it's a great point because those decisions should not be made by most people. Mm-hmm. Um, a couple examples. So when Ball State was denying me to get in their Ph.D. program, in the meantime, some local community college, University of St. Francis in Fort Wayne, um, private university, I go there and apply. And the guy who's the, basically the head of the committee that deals with the people who check the box. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> That's what they should call it, right? Well, like the committee of the people who check the box. <laughs> check, it, it, Ball State <laughs> called it the special admissions committee, okay. right? But basically every, every university has one of these, right? Yeah. When you check that box, a whole nother process begins, right? And they always have these boards and heads of boards. Well, this this guy called me in and we talked. First of all, he met me face to face, okay, which is unusual. Yeah, in law, law schools, like you don't meet any. I actually, mm-hmm. I sort of accidentally met the dean of admissions okay. in New York at one of those like cattle call admissions-y kind of places. Right, right. And uh, and this this guy, who he, he, I was walking by all these schools that were like based in the South and, mm-hmm. he, and he looks at me, he's like, Tulane, New Orleans. I was like, man, I'll sweat my ass off in New Orleans. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and then, and uh, he, he said, it was going north for me. I mean, I'm from Puerto Rico. I mean, it, right. it gets hot. It gets cold in the winter. I was like, what? What do you got? Like, <laughs> so then we, you know, we started talking a little bit and I told him about my, my, uh, my backstory some, cause I literally had nothing to lose. I wasn't mm-hmm. trying to impress him or right. convince him or whatever. I was just, you know, having a conversation and he actually was like into it, you know? Yeah. And he's like, you need to talk. And she was Susan Krinsky, who was the Dean was talking to someone else at the time. So then when, you know, when she was finished with that, then we spoke a little bit and, you know, one of the things that she mentioned to me was like, oh, I've, I've let several people in who didn't have undergrad degrees, which was, you know, relatively unique for me. Right. Um, and she's like, yeah, they all turned out fabulous. And then, you know, in hindsight, yeah, you know, talking to her and she's like, yeah, you were the easiest admission decision, you know, to be older like we yeah, are, you yeah. know, to have a, a track record yep. of whether it be legal or researching or writing mm-hmm. or something, you know, like. We've got that history behind us and we have a resume beforehand. I mean, if you're like 22 and all you ever did was like graduate college and smoke weed and live in a dorm, you know, and whether you got straight A's or whatever, like you don't really know anything about that that applicant. You know, oh, I played, you know, on the on the, the water polo team mm-hmm. or something. So um, I think that, you know, being able to, to make those decisions requires hopefully someone who has a little bit more humanitarian background. Yep. Well, well, this uh, so the University of St. Francis where I applied. It's all of a sudden this guy. First of all, interviewed me. Where before, like Ball State, most places only legal documents they'll let you submit. Okay, so he first of all sees me. Mm-hmm. Secondly, this guy has training in counterterrorism. <laughs> so I mean, he had this weird, you know. Uh, so he was for the National Guard and the reserves. He was like a consultant, and he did work like anti-violence, uh, you know, violence prevention uh, on campuses. Mm-hmm. So what was interesting, so he starts talking to me. He's like, oh, yeah, he says, when people usually decide to do a violent crime, he says, this step happens, this step happens, this step happens. 
well, here, you know, I've been through therapy for years. Mm-hmm. I had a psych major, you know, and this has been my life. And here he's teaching me something about how violent crimes occur that I didn't know. And he was, he was dead on. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what was interesting, but he was able to assess the situation, realize I was not a risk. Mm-hmm. And then he's like, I know this. He says, I just have to tell my committee this now and let them know. Yeah. But so this is so unusual to have someone who's one trained in this situation. Mm-hmm. Um, because we have situations we know like where HR folks don't even know how to read a rap sheet. Mm-hmm. So they don't really know the difference between someone who's been uh, just taken in but yet not charged, you right. know, or the, where they were acquitted. Or they you know? get eight different uh, charges on their on the, for arrests, you yes. know, and they're all sort of like potentials. But it really comes down to like one sort of, you know, you, you tried to mm-hmm. like flex away from the police as they were handcuffing you and you, you picked up eight different eight charges. Eight different charges. And, and then they don't get dismissed, but then they're, they're still sitting there. And the HR folks don't know the difference sometimes. And so, you know, you've got the one hand have people who are trained and you've got other situations like really down here uh, was the first Louisiana was the first state in the United States where they banned the box for universities. Mm -hmm. Okay. And statewide. And so people have done work. You're welcome in the United States. There you are. Right. I mean, (laughs) and others have followed since. Right. But I mean, so, I mean, honestly, that's why I'm here. Yeah. Uh, You know, I mean, but it it just came down to, uh, you know, so we have people. And then the third model, I think, that maybe to put up is this is kind of critical mass. So you have different places um, like NJ Step out on the East Coast. They have where they have formerly incarcerated network, mm-hmm. but they have formerly incarcerated individuals on admission decisions for formerly incarcerated. Mm-hmm. So people are saying the admissions committee is like, hey, we want you to come in and be a consultant and a judge, educate yeah. this situation. Mm-hmm. Now, kind of in the paper, one of the things we're talking about when we're talking critical mass is California. They had the whole underground scholar system, yeah. which is just these huge networks of formerly incarcerated individuals being supportive networks for each other on universities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, like, New Orleans, you know, we created the the first uh, full on po- uh, public housing policy mm. for admissions and background checks. And, you know, one of the you're welcome in the United States of America. <laughs> one of the, uh, the components of that policy uh, was actually that the review board shall include a formerly incarcerated person who's yeah. a resident. Right. Well, and so uh, and that happens to be Dolphinette Martin. Okay. And, you know, all her reports are always like, you know, we review these cases. Of course, you know, part of it was that only so many cases now even trigger the further review. Mm. So that was a big part of it. And then secondly, when they do do the further review, I think she mentioned at one point maybe just like one or two people that they did admit, but they also gave them a pathway to admission. Of okay. Like, this is what we'd like to see, right? Mm-hmm. And so, but it, it, you know, as you can imagine, and you, you know, whether it be higher education or otherwise, when people get to these gates of opportunity, They've cleared so many hurdles. They put so many things like in in place. They've they've gotten sort of cleaned up and made their ninth appointment or whatever the case may be, you yeah. know. And uh, and then to get the no, then or in your previous yeses didn't mean anything. The yes of the pro board didn't mean anything. Yes of all your other employers. Yes of your undergrad degree. You know, whatever. You, you just have to keep on getting a new yes mm. as if it's a brand new uh, situation, right? You know? But I I, th- I think um, one of the things that that y- you that you put in there from one of the uh, articles was about how uh, the drug laws, the federal drug laws, reduced um, high school completion and college enrollment, as yeah. we can totally imagine. I mean, it passes the smell test, of course, mm-hmm. and then there's data to back that up. But I was curious if anyone has done any uh, more recent studies to show in states that have uh, legalized or even decriminalized marijuana, has, has that changed educational attainment at all? 
Uh, not that I know of, Bruce. And I think it's a it's a great question. Um, Send in your research, buddies. Yeah, actually, right. I mean, because this <laughs> assemble, <is> a- <laughs> assemble, <laughs> uh, research of the United States. No, but that you know, because the thing is, uh, you know, here I am on the Louisiana yeah. uh, statewide task force, the regulation of cannabis, right? And these like differences. Mm-hmm. This one hadn't come mm-hmm. up. I just thought of it as I was like reading the paper. Sure. You know, these differences between. The, re- the legalization states and the non-legalization states. And, you know, one of the things you point out is that, like, no state has, like, tried to repeal their legalization because it's been such a disaster. Right. But if you can show these these other kind of comparative outcomes, mm-hmm. and potentially, as we can imagine, um, my hypothesis would be, well, with, with fewer marijuana convictions, which is very frequent amongst, you know, our, our late teen people. Right. Right. You know, it, it may result in fewer, like, you know, getting kicked out of schools or losing your financial aid or all these other types of things uh, that send people awry, mm-hmm. you know, at that mm-hmm. age. Yeah. Cause, you know, for so long, too, we had the, uh, oh, the question uh, on the grant applications, you know, for drug convictions, you mm-hmm. know, that was prohibitive. That was, you know, preventing people from getting grants, mm-hmm. you know, coach. And that was just preventing education for people. They finally have done away with that question now, right? Yeah. And a lot of people are reading that wrong, too. Mm-hmm. I remember being locked up and, and my, my boy Dre was filling out stuff. Like, mm-hmm. we were applying to colleges while we were inside and sure. pr- trying to present uh, 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 acceptance letters to the parole board. Okay, <laughs> right, I got right. one. I got one to mm-hmm. Rhode Island College. Um, got denied by every other school I applied to, which is almost, like, hilarious to think of, like, Dude, you're in prison. You're applying to college. And it's like, yeah, I'm ready. Like, you have to, right, right. I did a whole portfolio for, for Rhode Island School of Design, and I even figured out okay. a way to make the paper the right size, even though I didn't have that size, by creating, like, a little thing that, like, folded out the paper. I thought I was being all, like, you know, cool and interesting or whatever. But at any rate, um, but, you know, Dre had uh, specific drug charges. So my boy, he actually, you know, he's got a degree now from Brown and Yale Law. Right. But at the time we were just a couple guys making a dollar a day. Right. And, um, and so we were like reading the 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 law really clearly about mm-hmm. financial aid. And the thing that we we're able to find was how if you took a like a drug program, yep. you could over override the, the prohibition. Mm-hmm. And, you know, then we started transcending through Education Foundation after we, you know, some years after we got out to try to help other people, you know, trying to like interpret some of these these little uh, pieces of the law is part of our process, right? Mm -hmm. And as you can guess, like people would be talking about, oh, once you got a conviction, you can't get financial aid, right? That becomes like word on the street. Yeah, right. You know, and so, and and it goes from drug conviction to any conviction, right? And then even like these these people who work in these these decision-making scenarios, they start to Mm -hmm. to use word on the street rather than the actual letter of the law. Yeah, because, I mean, you're running the same problem with, uh, like, say, it was, you know, uh, the the drug conviction. You Like, say, if you go through a therapy program that had randomized your analysis, you were good. Um, And then the other one that was a big situation was uh, that we still run into problems, but it's – you can get around them – uh, defaulted student loans. Mm-hmm. Okay, so a lot of people think, yeah, oh, just really common too. You have a defaulted student loan mm-hmm. when you're in, um, you're hit. Well, no, you're not. Um, you, if you have to be able to make six consecutive payments, mm-hmm. and they're not very much, but then the show, and then they will put it in default. Then you're eligible because mm-hmm. it's in default. Um, the problem used to be before internet, especially, it was just is like chasing down who was actually the loan holder. Yeah. Um, I've had about seven different loan holders over the yeah, course of my yeah, they uh, change academic hands. career. Mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. But, it, yeah, you get some letter in the mail. It's like, pay this person now. You're like, what the hell? 
what am I supposed to do here? You know, back in the day, it took that you really had to have family or friends that would call and chase down and find out and then help start the payment process. Now, Internet, it's a different era. It's simpler. Mm-hmm. But again, word on the street, a lot of times people think just because they um, have a default alone that they're not going to be eligible um, for college inside. And that's not the case. Yeah. I mean, it's it's really exciting right now. It's just the, you know, the intention, the effort that, you know, different people are doing around the country. Um, like I know my... Um, you know, my comrades in, in Minnesota, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm on the board of this organization, All Square, which is a reentry uh, slash grilled cheese restaurant. Okay. And <laughs> has really, you know, cool. it's taken off over time, you know, had a, a, a recent tragedy, um, mm. which has kind of hit a bump with, with, with uh, one of the, one of the, the core members of the, of the, the team. Um, but, you know, we continue with, with, with strength. Sure. And something that was kind of spun off uh, was this this prison law program, okay. And a partnership with one of the law schools up there mm-hmm. to really, you know, and I, you know, I, I, I gave my all my two or three cents I could to like what what would help, you know, a program really take off. And so uh, Emily Turner and, and and the team like really brought together a lot of different folks to figure out how how to do this thing, mm-hmm. and you know, what kinds of of in prison presence needs to happen, right? Like how to get an nice. actual degree program on the inside that's not just like kind of a, you know, a certificate here or there, mm-hmm. right? Yep. And and how to get professors actually interacting with students and not just some sort of like online bubble test kind of thing. And and then also how to create a space where it's not just the, you know, exceptional opportunity grabbers, but like you can have more successes across the board, right? Like can someone kind of come up short and get the paralegal degree. And maybe not maybe that was all they wanted to get, right? And then someone goes next level and gets the law degree, so it's like a little bit more broader success. Um, but you know, but you but you you made an interesting point or, or one of the papers did about exceptionalism. Yes. And you know, and and just how much of that is rooted in opportunity and not you know, like how many people could have been exceptional yeah. if there were more yeah. opportunities. I think that's a great point. I mean, so many times, you know, because I'm in a PhD program or I've had uh, two bachelors and two masters now or something, you know, they're like, oh, my gosh, you, you're so exceptional. You're, you're di-. No, I had some exceptional opportunities. Yeah. OK. And I think, you know, I think if more people have exceptional opportunities, they're going to be exceptional as well. Yeah. Um, one of the big changes that's going on kind of now, too, Bruce, you're talking about like, um, you know, having the programs uh, on site prison programs is mm-hmm. um, the after a lot of grassroots advocating, uh, mm-hmm. activism for years, the Pell Grant has been reinstated, mm-hmm. okay, so for prison college programs. So get, get, get me up to speed. So yeah. I know that there was a pilot program yep. at, at first, mm-hmm. but does that have been expanded out to like full sort of access or is it still in this kind of like piloty phase? Uh, okay, good question. So first of all, you know, 1994, Pell Grant discontinued. Uh, then under Obama administration, they did what was called Second Chance Pell. Mm-hmm. So different sites could apply to have the university there get Pell Grant funding for experimental purposes. And what it came down to is they were wanting to gather data. Mm-hmm. Okay, does um, this thing work? Well, right? man, do, yeah, and it, yes and no. It, it <laughs> was. I mean, that's what they had to do. But we've known for forty freaking years yeah, we know. that this works. I mean, you know, you have sixty-eight percent recidivism rate within the first three years. We know you get someone a bachelor degree, it drops down to single digits. Does food stop hunger? Yeah, exactly. It's about a that. It. It's like you know, and it's so frustrating that those of us doing the work, we've known this. However, 
really what I feel like the Obama administration was doing for, okay, let's get new data sets, okay, to throw to people again for this generation. But more importantly, it was the foot in the door phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's get federal funding for college education. Let's get a presence through federal funding in prisons again, and then we can expand from there, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think really it was a brilliant idea. It just had to be done a step at a time, okay? Now, so there was a little backlash, or not backlash, so they wanted to create data. And one of the big gold standards, of course, that all of us doing this work are tired of, but nonetheless, it's, it's theirs. Does it reduce recidivism? Okay. Yeah. Does it reduce recidivism? Of course, we know it does, but they had to show that. So, and then what kind of job opportunities did people have afterward? Did they have higher wages, da, da, et cetera? Mm-hmm. So, so many of the outcomes that they were looking for within the research were post-release outcomes. Therefore, what happened when they're doing second chance Pell um, no lifers mm-hmm. were allowed to be in those programs and generally long-termers weren't either. Okay. Yeah. Cause they went post-release data. Okay. Um, so it was really more of the private organizations, a, a shout out down here to operation restoration. Uh, I teach at the Louisiana correctional Institute for women mm-hmm. through the operation restoration program. And they have a, a kind of alliance with Tulane. So it's Tulane tuition mm-hmm. through the school of, uh, uh, SOPA, uh, school of, Blah, 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 what, uh, professional advancement, school professional okay. advancement. Thank you, Dad. <laughs> Drew Blank. Um, I'm like SOPO. Is yeah, that yeah. That's what it, what? It's uh, kind of like their continuing ed okay. branch. And uh, so what they did is like they, they did not allow that restriction, okay, of long-termers or lifers. Mm-hmm. So like I'm dealing with a population that's unusually high with long-termers and lifers, which mm-hmm. is, is great. Like I say, shout out to them. But throughout the nation, that was not the case. Yeah. Okay. But uh, again, they were doing this, get the foot in the door, build up data, well, then it got to the B uh, for some several years now. Right before COVID, we had um, amazing momentum. Uh, there was an organization called Unlock Higher Ed. Mm-hmm. All sorts of edu- uh, programs throughout the nation dealing with uh, reentry, dealing with higher education in prison or part of this. I mean, all sorts of days on the hill. Mm-hmm. I think I went on the hill four times. The hill. You know, you know you're somebody when you call it the hill. <laughs> Look at you. you, you, you st- <laughs> well, I, you know, I mean, but I, I represented lifers. Yeah. Uh, several times. Basically, I was raised by lifers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and basically, you know, the argument I was making was, you know, they are going to set the tenor for the prison culture. Yeah. For good or bad. That's what a lot of people don't realize. They, they exactly. don't know that stuff. You know, so they're looking at, you know, utility. They're thinking social utility. Well, why should we educate lifers mm-hmm. when they're never getting out? What goods mm-hmm. that do? Well, you're getting rehabilitation on the cheap. Yeah. Because you're educating lifers who are going to have a ripple effect throughout the whole institution. So it's going to affect other people's, you know, not to mention every individual should have the right to so-called redemption or rehabilitation, just the Mm -hmm. right to have the tools to change or or to have something positive to do Mm -hmm. in their life. Um, So what it came down to is right before COVID, we were getting a lot of momentum to get the Pell Grant back. We had bipartisan support, Uh but they were caught up the right, you know, the Republicans were caught up on two points lifers and sex offenders. Mm-hmm. And so I was making the arguments for the lifers and then Unlock Higher Ed asked me to expand my arguments to regardless of time or crime. So mm-hmm. I ended up making the arguments and also for uh, sex offenses. And basically what I came down to is like, okay, wow. So you despise someone so much for their crimes that you're never going to give them the number one proven rehabilitative tool. Mm-hmm. And then you're going to impute individual level blame for the systemic decision that you made. So if they get out and recidivate, you're going to blame them when you never gave them yeah. tools to change. I mean, that's interesting because, you know, when we were, uh, 
you know, when we were starting the the our program, uh, TTAF, Transcendental Education Foundation, mm-hmm. you know, three of us we were all locked up in, in Rhode Island. We all got law degrees. We wanted to just, you know, wow. put our own money in there, right, and and give out some scholarships and, and try to help out, do some mentorships. And it's, it's not a huge program. It never, like, kind of, you know, we, we never, like, conceived it as, like, some big wraparound everything, but it was, like, a little something. Mm-hmm. And, um, but one of the things that we thought about early on was, okay, well, what if... Uh, one of the people that we give a scholarship to, you know, has a, you know, uh, publicly jarring offense. Mm -hmm. And what if there's like a write up in the paper of like TTEF did this, blah, blah, blah. And so we actually sat down to create a sort of, you know, a a preemptive sort of press release or whatever, some statement. Okay. And basically kind of came up with the same stuff you're talking about, which is, you know, education is a is a public good and it's a benefit for all. And whether you're someone who killed seven people and you're sitting in high security on your own, you know, your ability to kind of get beyond where you are is in all of our interests. Yes. You know, and, and then that person also has impact on whether it be the guards or the people they're locked up with, the mentorship as you're talking about, you know, and here in Louisiana, you know, it's we've, it's always been the kind of ironic that the, you know, the reentry court is based on mentorships of people who are locked up in Angola, mostly for life, who will never get an, another opportunity. Uh, you know, we've hopefully, you know, we've been you know, on the verge of changing some of that stuff. Same with like the veterans court, people would get the mentorship and, you know, they, those, the mentors themselves would, would be, you know, and clearly they're just kind of doing it for the love of the game, so to speak, you know, for the, for the love of their, their common uh, human member, right? And so they want to build a, a better society and there's nothing in it for them. And, uh, and that's just kind of who we are. That's, that's who we become as leaders and mentors yeah. and, and elders and wise people in our community, wherever that community is. Yeah. So how did, your, uh, how did your pitch go? Uh, well, put it this way, uh, they have Pell Grant's been re- it, it went well. It went well, but I'm not going to, I don't want to say my pitch. Mm-hmm. It ended up, they signed in the law, uh, which surprised us all. Uh, with absolutely no restrictions on time or offense. Mm-hmm. Uh, so despite crime or amount of time, um, what it came down to is it was a uh, congressman. I, wish, I don't remember his name. I apologize. Wanted, he was getting ready to retire. He wanted his legacy to be simplification of the FAFSA, the, the federal mm-hmm. aid application. And one of the points was drug application. Part of it was just simplifying it, fewer questions. And there was rumor that, you know, maybe everything will go through, but we're laughing, scoffing. I mean, nothing works that way. Yeah. So we're waiting for COVID to kind of die down a little bit and start our you know efforts again. Well, I'll be a son of a gun if they didn't sign in. Pell Grant, just regardless of time or amount of yeah. uh, crime. You know, the, rem- yeah. And so it just came in. And so the latest date that it can be instituted is July 1st, 2023. Okay. So, I mean, it is back. Mm-hmm. Uh now, where it's at right now is they debated for quite a while whether to do, and there was division in our field, uh, whether to do a negotiated, uh, to do recommendations in the Department of Education or to do negotiated rulemaking. Okay, so what the difference is, is recommendations means, like it sounds, the Department of uh, Education would just make recommendations on how Pell should be implemented. Okay, doesn't mean DOCs really have to follow them. Doesn't mean that the next administration can do things differently mm-hmm. then, too, because that's what they can do under recommendations. But it's a quick process, and a lot of people in our field were for that because, you know, we could start this coming semester mm-hmm. having college programs. Now, if someone's an individual mm-hmm. student, um, you know, who's incarcerated 
and let's say is taking a um, you know an online program, mm-hmm. and you know, assuming it's accredited, uh, are they able to apply for that Pell Grant themselves and apply those funds to that online program, or is it literally only the institutions can get the funds and do in-house? Oh, great question. Um, real quick, they're they're doing right now the negotiated rulemaking, mm-hmm. so some of this is going to be on maybe determined there, Bruce. Mm-hmm. So, you know, how are they going to implement Pell? Well, they're going to they're negotiating the rules right now and they have formerly incarcerated individuals helping with this mm-hmm. uh, on the committee, too. Um, but once they do, then that's going to be established. Then it's going to be established to where, you know, try to help prevent some of these predatory institutions mm-hmm. of just making it a cash oh, yeah. cow. University of Phoenix, um, like what? There's another 50 million we can pull uh, in? There's going to be there's several this way. I won't throw all them out by name. I mean, but, they, you know, or, yeah. or especially some of the tablet programs. I mean. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're just throwing a tablet in there. They have basically module classes and never yeah. really have one-on-one with an instructor. And, and it's just not the quality, um, you know, education. So we're trying to get, you know, quality education insured. Mm-hmm. Um, usually what has to happen is you have a program then that, you know, where they have to get site accreditation. Site accreditation usually goes through uh, where you, the regional accrediting associations throughout the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, have to approve that site, make sure you're meeting all the, the requirements, make sure it's commensurate with university education. Uh, once it, but once you get that site approval, then you can be a, a degree conferring site. Mm-hmm. Okay, You can take classes before then and get credits, university credits, but you're not a degree conferring site. Okay, right. Once you're a degree conferring site, then you're eligible for Pell. So there's different steps and situations that have to occur um, to be eligible for Pell. Mm-hmm. Um, so realistically, one of the things we're looking at is really starting next year, we're going to have university programs in prison just proliferating, um, probably to exceed even what we had pre-1994. You know, it's going to take a few years for everything mm-hmm. to get going. So the big concern in higher education and prison right now is ensuring we're getting uh, quality programs, mm-hmm. ensuring we're getting the right – uh, agreements. Yeah. So you know we don't want to get a university where if they're cha- if they're uh, transferred to another prison, those credits aren't transferable. Right. Okay. So we we need uh, you know uh, agreements there, uh, or we, you know uh, you were talking about what we we call uh, stackable credentials, like you're saying, hey, a paralegal degree, then a law degree. Mm-hmm. You know, we want to make we we'll try to get people stackable credentials, yeah. and you know, so there's a there's a long list of things that we're trying to ensure and. I think one of the encouraging things for us that are formerly incarcerated is they're really trying to include right now in higher education and prison research and policy, they're trying to include formerly incarcerated voices mm-hmm. um, because they're the individuals who've been there. They can know the setting a little better. Uh, they know, you know, they've been through it. Yeah. Again, the lived experience is situated knowledge, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. One of the things I'm kind of pushing for is let's go a step beyond that and, you know, for instance, uh, when I was in maximum security run in the prison, yeah, I've got a lot I've got, you know, if you want to start a program there again, yeah, I have a lot of knowledge, but you know, I left that institution in 2006. Yeah. So, you need to talk to the mm-hmm. people there. Yeah. So, you know, not just the formerly incarcerated, you need to talk to the currently incarcerated individuals mm-hmm. to get the ground uh, you know, kind of the ground floor uh, perspective. Yeah. Yeah, I remember when I got out with one of the one of the first times I felt valuable in the mm. sort of policy sphere, and I had literally only been out, who knows, like a few weeks, and I was at the state house uh, in a in a committee hearing, and uh, a legislator like leaned over to an organizer, uh, a person who became my friend Mimi, 
and was like, you know, what do you what do you think of, the, of this bill here? And I, I kind of it was I think it was about like educational credits, right, or like good time credits, you know. And they were trying to make some change, and she was like, well, hold on. And then she passed it over to me and was like, like Bruce, sure. will this work? And I was like, and I read it, and I, I said something to the effect of like, you know, on paper it works, but let me tell you why it doesn't work. There you are, you know. And there and so then they were like. Thank you. You know, and and of course I was fresh out, mm-hmm. and so I had the you know the real like how things are are actually implemented, um, and we need that perspective. Yes. And and you know people don't know, they think about let's say uh, incarceration education, and they think of people as like these static folks. And it's like, do you realize how many different cell blocks and and securities that someone can go through over the course of like three, four, five years, yeah. and you know, are they taking a full-time course load? Are they going to get a four-year degree in four years? Is it they're going to take one course per year and it takes them 20 years to get a degree? Like Time to completion, right? Yeah, so some of the, you know, I feel like there's a lot of, like, kind of surface-level conversations, um, you know, and, and not just in this particular arena, but in mm-hmm. lots of arenas that involve, uh, you know, whether it be incarcerated people or formerly incarcerated people, where it's like, you're not actually getting into the the real ins and outs right. uh, to make an actual program work. And then you kind of wonder, like, do you want to build an actual program? <laughs> you just want something that looks like a program. Yeah. Well, you know? You know, and in this, this is what we're trying to prevent. And it's right now as it's like, as the old saying goes, you know, things, you know, stuff's getting real. Well, it's it's that mm-hmm. time now. I mean, Pell Grant's back, you know, mm-hmm. next year. So it's like you can't do the surface, uh, you know, wanting to make it look like a program. No, it has to be a program and we have to ensure it's quality program. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think it, it, ideally we can get to a space, you know, when you think about the trajectory of mass incarceration, where mm-hmm. we are as, as, a, as a culture, um, you know, kind of bringing this thing a little bit boomeranging around some and, you know, the drug prohibition, et cetera. Um, you know, when folks really look at the the history of mass incarceration and the extension of, of, of slavery and Jim Crow and, and all that and, you know, the, the drug war, as we know, being, you know, a d- domestic control thing, um, you know, to really right the ship, to really to create some level of of uh, I'm sorry, mea culpa, et cetera, and 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 course correct. Education should be probably amongst the most no-brainer, yeah. uncontroversial. And I remember when Brown University, uh, which among other universities is is built upon slave money, the the, the brothers who uh, who built that school, uh, they were slave traders in, in up in Rhode Island, and they actually were they were being introspective about their history, and they had this slavery and justice committee, and so they're proposing all these different you know projects and things and. And, you know, what can the school do to sort of like, you know, make amends in some way? And I had said in this public forum, I was like, hey, how about you start giving out scholarships to the incarcerated people and build a, a pathway from incarceration and recognize that, you know, prison systems are the are the actual legacy of slavery. And so to undo that, mm-hmm. you have to be involved in the prison system and undoing the prison system and, and the impacts. And everybody looked at me like I just, you know giving them a presentation on like chemotherapy or something. <laughs> <laughs> they weren't ready for that. Yeah. And I, and I was just yeah. kind of like, wow, like you said, they weren't ready for that. Mm-hmm, and I was like, mm-hmm. I was really disappointed because like here we were in the space yeah. of like the slavery and justice committee. And they were just so like, it was at that point in time, it was probably about, uh, you know, like 2000 and I don't know, like seven or something right. like that, you know, just like way over their head. But it, to me, it was like yeah. the most obvious thing they should do. Yeah, and I agree, and I and I I think we're right to situate the return or the reinstatement of the Pell Grant 
in light of mass incarceration. Mm. Okay, the era of mass incarceration, because I think for one, it, it um, it's the recognition, bringing this back, of the failure of mass incarceration. I think it's the recognition of the failure of the war on drugs, um, just a continually ballooning or bloating prison system um, without, you know, we a lot of times we'll look at, you know, pre-incarceration, incarceration, post-incarceration. So mm-hmm. we're dealing with, you know, the marginalized all the way through, mm-hmm. you know, before, you know, if we're looking at trauma or, or social exclusion or lack of opportunities, you know, and now we're looking at, okay, imprisonment and just, you know, what if you don't get anything, anybody to do or the trauma effects that are cumulative from there and then, then release what, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like, you know, at what point do we make an intervention? And uh, so for one, I think this is recognizing, oh, what we've been doing with mass incarceration did not work. Uh, but then two, it's like, oh, if we're going to make a point of intervention, you know, if we can't do it on the pre-incarceration, then this is our best place during incarceration. Mm-hmm. We can give people credentials when they give out. We can get them a, di- uh, a way that they can uh, have the tools to, to look at their own life, to critique their own culture, to make mm-hmm. a social systemic critique. And and then to be able to come out and have a different perspective, have credentials. We know it has an intergenerational effect. You have all of a sudden kids coming in to visit their parents inside. Mm-hmm. And it's like now, oh, wow, my mother or father is a, a college student. This becomes something yeah. in their 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 yeah. realm of possibility now, too. And we've had parents to where they were in competition then with the kid mm-hmm. um, for you know, who can get the best grades or they would study together sometimes. And, yeah. you know, I mean, it's just the the intergenerational effect, the effect it has on individuals, you know, the, the post-release outcomes, the outcomes, especially when dealing my heart's with long-termers, you know, what it does for people while they're inside still, too. Um, no, I mean, it's it's funny because, you know, Norris was just saying that about, you know, about about his, you know, his his family, like when mm. he was going to school while in Angola yeah. and competing for grades, you know, and, and, and that kind of thing. And, and um, you know, Kira, you know, my daughter, she walked across the aisle uh, in full gear from law school and got the diploma, you know, and, and, <laughs> and was sort of like a mascot of my law school class. Oh, wow. um, but like, you're, you're absolutely right. And I think another interesting thing, you know, sort of a message to the to the establishment people is, you know, then when we show up with these PhDs and, yeah. in, in, you know, in social psychology or some kind of thing or, or a law degree or whatever, and we're participating, you know, and they kind of gave us the pass to come into the, the governor's office, or whatever, to have that conversation. And they're saying, thank you so much. Wow. I didn't have that information. I didn't have that perspective. Uh, you know, oh, can we appoint you to this task force or whatever? And it's like you've benefited so much by the contributions we had to almost like kick the door in to provide, yes. please open that door. And, you know, and we're seeing that. And those of us that had to kick the door in have to like, you know, like, you know, let down our, our, uh, you know, our, our Thank emotions you. a little bit yeah. and be like, great, this is what I want. I want it to be easier on the next person. Mm-hmm. I want the next person to get funding. I want the next person to get a scholarship. I want, you know, and, and uh, on and on. And so, you know, personally, anytime I see somebody, you know, kind of getting a, a a little easier lift up, I guess. You mm-hmm. know, or recently released, et cetera, and they're right. they're stepping into a, a positive situation. Um, I'm just like, yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, it. You, you know, that's the thing. I mean, you know, we kick the door open. Well, I'm, I'm putting a door stop there. <laughs> yeah, know, some people will do that too because they want to be the only one. No, I mean, right? I want to I want to hold the door open. I want to yeah, put that yeah, little. No, stop I, I don't think door some people like they lock well, it behind I've them. I've seen right? they want to be the exceptional person. Yeah, you yeah. know, they want to be the exceptional person without recognizing, you know, again, exceptional opportunities mm-hmm. they've had. They want that attention, that limelight, you know, and and those. I don't even want to go into that, but that's just it's just the wrong attitude. I mean, for me and my motivation, it's always been for two 
folks, you know, two types of folks. For one, some of uh, the, the people that when I left, they had no legal remedy to get out ever. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I'm doing the opportunity. They invested in me in my life to be my, you know, mentors to me. Mm-hmm. They changed my life. You know, I'm out here trying to do what they would be doing if they had the opportunity themselves. Mm-hmm. And I pray, and I don't pray, but I mean, I, I, I'm not a praying person, but I hope that they have that opportunity. Yeah. Okay. I want them to have that opportunity. You know, laws change. Life does not always mean life. And then two, you know, obviously, you know, we're making these accomplishments. We're trying to do everything we can for the next folks behind us. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, just because, you know, the old adage, you know, because, you know, somebody had to walk barefoot in the snow five miles to go to school, you know, the, the oh, next person shouldn't please. have to. <laughs> exactly. Well, it's a tradition. That's how we earn our stripes. <laughs> <laughs> We're all going to have plenty of snow to walk yeah. through, though. I don't, you know, if they can walk in my path on the snow, I hope they do. Yeah. So, I mean, so what do you, what do you think about, mm-hmm. I mean, where are we in terms of having fully incarcerated professors around the country. Oh, they're all around. How many? What are we talking oh, about? Oh, my gosh. I mean... Dozens, you know, hundreds, thousands? Uh, well, that's it's interesting. So, first of all, I was stuck in Indiana, and I'm trying... It took me several years to get a PhD because I was getting so many denials, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, one time I was introduced at a conference as one of the leading experts in the nation on the barriers to um, university employment and university admissions because mm-hmm. I had gotten so many denials, right? <laughs> <laughs> Here's Sisyphus, I, who's one of the leading experts in walking up hills. I would, I would have to laugh, you know, but I mean, I would, but I would learn why it happened, you know, even like how ban the box can work against you. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, I could talk about that too, but I mean, you know, so then I would tell others. Okay? I got 31 law school rejection letters. There somewhere. you are. I mean, you know, but <laughs> I have one in one one acceptance. <laughs> um, so okay, but one of the things that kept me motivated was going to these national conferences. And seeing people in like the formerly incarcerated college graduate network mm-hmm. and seeing other people who are PhDs mm-hmm. that did time. Um, right now, I know of professors in several states that are formerly incarcerated. We have uh, uh, st- well, one of the, the more uh, highly acclaimed, Stan, Stanley Adris. Um, the prosecutor said when he's 21, that, you know, there's no hope. Mm-hmm. Encourageable judge gave him everything you can. Well, it, long story short, he got out and became uh, endocrinologist right. researcher at John Hopkins. I think I can spell that of all places. Yeah, yeah. and <laughs> now he's at Howard. You know, on tenure track at Howard University. Nice. Okay, mm-hmm. uh, we have another guy, uh, Noel Vest, who's a uh, um, statistician at Stanford. University, you know, postdoc. Pretty, pretty nerdy. So, yeah, pers- you know, postdoc. And he's, you know, uh, basically studying addictions, mm-hmm. you know, in psychology, you know, uh, psychological science, you know, working with addictions. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, the Chris Beasley, the president, mm-hmm. the uh, person who started formerly incarcerated college graduate networks, a professor at uh, Washington mm-hmm. University or, you know, in Washington State. Yeah. I mean, we, again, throughout the nation, we're getting more and more individuals who are uh, formerly incarcerated as mm-hmm. professors. I've tried to get a uh, you know an adjunct here or there okay. you know and and, and I, I've submitted my stuffs before mm-hmm. uh, hasn't pulled off you know but our you know our office right now is right across the street from Xavier and I thought like that would yep. be a, a nice. great um, you know I have a terminal degree I, I love to teach sure um, You'd be and good then, at it. you know they have a you know they have like a, a political science component you mm-hmm. know they've got a, a, a law pathway a pre law pathway there and you know maybe. Um, you know, maybe I can pull something off there, mm-hmm. but just, you know, as a, like a, like a little side project in a sense. But I, I, I think that a lot of us around the country who are maybe not necessarily, you know, tenure track goal right. or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, we can still find these ways where we can participate. But Absolutely. as you point out, you know, it's really about these opportunities. And sometimes, 
you know, when you get 31 rejection letters, it, it takes a little something to put in number 32, yeah. right? And so well, like people will tell me I, all the time, like, oh, you should. Mm -hmm. And it's so funny. I don't think I've ever heard someone say you should suggest something that I haven't tried before. Oh, wow. Yeah, okay. going all the way back, sure, you know, sure. like, oh, you should, you know, have an art exhibit in, in New York. You should, you know, get a book publisher. Mm -hmm. You should, you know, fill in the blank. And it's like, <laughs> you know, and you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I always say, like, you know, you could you could have a thing for redheads, and but if you ask out a hundred redheads, and they all say no, you might still have a thing for redheads, but you're probably going to stop asking out redheads. You well, know, <laughs> I, I think that's one thing when we talk about the importance of ban the box for like undergraduate university admissions. What they found in the research is um, so many individuals that would get to the point of that question, mm -hmm. and they would quit. Yeah. doing the application. So they wouldn't even turn it in. Because like, so, I know where this thing goes. I know where this goes. Yeah. I don't want to go through getting all the legal documents. Yeah. I don't want to go through, I have to explain my story yeah. again. People I don't forget wanna... what you have to, or they, people don't know. Big, yep. You know, like, oh, you should apply for a fill in the blank. And it's like, I could put four weekends worth of work in and, and like 80 labor. hours, the emotional labor, yes. and then have my gut ripped out and say that was a waste of your time or to have to explain it in front of a, yeah. another trial basically the admissions committee right mm -hmm. and you know have their judgment folks who don't know anything about the criminal legal system they don't know much on sociology mm -hmm. and you know uh or they pull out some little oh. tidbit of like oh well you need to go back like 15 years and dot an i yeah and then come back and see us again yeah and you're like i don't even know where that i is the dot or me let's let's tell me about the crime that was 1989 i was 17 years old mm -hmm. okay you really want you really want yeah. me we have to go let me try to first of all think if i can really try to put myself back in that mindset it's so hard to reimagine yourself in that i mean i can explain it but i mean that right. doesn't really you know but it's just so you know so but what it's that dampening effect though they call it dampening effect in other words people go to that applications they get to that point and they just stop so yeah. it's like you're saying you know i'm 31 denials i don't know if i really want that 32nd right i mean again mm -hmm. to put yourself through that again it's nice if you can just regurgitate stuff that's already written throw mm -hmm. it out there but i mean to really to put the your heart into that again yeah. that's that's that, a lot i mean else. honestly though one of the I, I couldn't i i don't think i could have gotten 32 denials if they all were sort of like these unique applications in a sense mm -hmm. But and I don't know about other programs, but like the law school process, you can kind of like upload your recommendations, upload yeah. some standard uh, things. Right. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, each one will have some unique elements, a yeah. uh, like maybe a unique essay or a couple unique yeah. questions. Do you have to do Common App? The, yeah, there's like a thing you, you put together and, okay. you know, and, and there were a few that like didn't use that. They had a very unique and mm -hmm. it's like, OK, well, hey, Yale Law School, I'm going to I'm going to go the extra mile. I'm going to write eight different essays for that thing. You know, right. like, why not? Because I have felt like I only have one opportunity to apply to Harvard Law School, Stanford Law School, Michigan right. Law School, right. you know, Tulane Law School. You name it. I applied to all of them. Uh, and so. But if not for those common components, mm -hmm. I definitely couldn't have done all those applications. And you know what? And if yeah. I didn't do all those applications, I probably would be not be sitting here with a law degree. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I wouldn't be in a PhD program. Uh, a couple of things. One, if I hadn't put in all sorts of applications. Mm -hmm. But two, um, it was for me networking nationally. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things about getting so many denials is you build up a lot of allies. Mm. Um, because it got to be people felt I was supposed to be hired at Auburn University. And went down there. They wanted to hire me for their prison college program. I mean, I was packed. I'd signed a year lease mm -hmm. and they reneged on me. Yeah. Um, they last minute, right? Denied it. But then the individuals there that were dealing with the prison program, I was going to be dealing, working with the prison program, taking graduate credits kind of um, until I could get admitted in graduate mm -hmm. school. Really neat situation they had arranged. 
Uh, but they felt so guilty. I think she, I had been through a lot of denials at this point. That was a rough one. That was one of my rougher ones. But still, mm-hmm. I think she took it, the woman who's uh, the head of that program, mm-hmm. the Alabama Arts and Education Project. Um, I think she took it harder than I did. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, I mean, it really it hit her completely blindsided where me, I had a few blindsides already at that point. Yeah. Um, but her and others started passing word around and advocating. So people down here, mm. uh, Annie Phoenix, used mm-hmm. to be Annie Friedis, contacted mm-hmm. me when I was in Indiana. And we had met at conferences, but mm-hmm. I mean, I, we weren't close for anything. And she's like, hey, here's the work we've done. Ban the box. I think you can get in down here. Yeah. I got so many denials at that point. I'm like, whatever, right? I'm tired of hearing this. Even where people have banned the box, doesn't always work either, right? right. And I got denied in California when they had banned the box. Uh, but this, uh, my homie, Michelle J- uh, Jones Daniel, mm-hmm. um, basically she's like, Jared, she says she can help you get in. Let's find out, you yeah. know? And sure enough, I mean, uh, she was in. So I'm admitted to the department that Annie ended up getting her PhD. Shout out to Annie. So shout out to Annie, Love absolutely. Annie. But Several things there. I just think the difference for me was people had done the work, mm-hmm. banning the box, but then two, formerly incarcerated individuals networking, mm-hmm. okay, throughout the nation. They're saying, hey, I've kicked this door down here. I think you can walk through it. Yeah. You know, let's find out together. And I just think that's so important, you know, because if we're not going to look out for each other, we're not always ensured that someone's going to look out for us. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, and it's really the spirit of all this different work that, you know, we've been doing here in New Orleans, but of course part of a national uh, infrastructure in, in so mm-hmm. many different ways. And, you know, just like the joint, you know, you, you, you create your own culture, your own networks, your own your own sort of power plays or resources. And, I mean, DIY mindset. I, I was actually, mm-hmm. before uh, coming over here, I was trying to fix the dryer. <laughs> <laughs> right, and I, and right. I could have told my landlord, hey, man, you got to buy a new dryer. But I'm like, I think I can figure this out. And so I'm like in there and pulling it off and screws and I got to, I'm going to try putting some belts on it and, and see what happens. But you know, that's all from, you know, my, my, my DIY mindset comes from prison because like ain't nobody going to help me but me. Right. You know, and maybe there's a little fault in there too, but we'll save that for, you know, (laughs) (laughs) that's another another one. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, so, so Jared, I mean, what are you working on? Uh, like any research right now that you want to share or, um, yeah, yeah. So, um, I'm kind of helping, uh, so I'm also a part of down here, uh, formerly incarcerated peer support mm-hmm. group. Uh, it's something that's been run by Thad Tatum, formerly, he's uh, formerly incarcerated from Shout Angola. Out Thad. Shout out to Thad, doing great work. Um, basically, he's been doing kind of like almost in a non-hierarchical model, uh, a support group for individuals, uh, most of them who've done just the majority of their lives in Angola, right? Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like an NAA model, just... But uh, we together developed a curriculum, 13 mm-hmm. different topics. You were part of that, Bruce. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, but it's so a lot of us are working now on an evaluation of mm-hmm. the program. We're wanting to build up data to ultimately show that, hey, this is effective. Here's why it's effective. So the model can be replicated. So mm-hmm. I'm kind of helping with that some. Uh, you know, I got a uh-huh. uh, – I've been meaning to say this the other day. I got an email the other day from someone who is launching um, – I'm going to mess it up. We'll talk. We'll touch base okay. after. But basically uh, – as you, I'm sure know, there's been more effort lately to come up with like therapists of color, you know, right. and, this and, that. Mm-hmm. and so this one was particularly around uh, therapists to deal with like, like maybe they're formerly incarcerated therapists or deal with incarceration issues or whatever. Okay, nice. And so I clicked through because I was curious, like mm-hmm. kind of what comes back, right? And so I kind of like tried to sign up and see what I, you know, if what I get, right? But you know, that's been an issue of just like who 
around the country, yeah. you know, and wherever you are has the capacity to deal with the traumas. And so I know when I was looking for yeah. a therapist here, I was like, well, maybe someone who's worked with like folks who've been in, in wars, right? Mm-hmm. Or like deployed in yes. Afghanistan, or maybe people who've dealt with, mm-hmm. you know, people who've dealt with addiction issues or whatever. Maybe there's some combination. Yeah. Um, I didn't find a, a, a brilliant person, but it, she was not uh, actually like, like I'm her first client right. who's, you know, talking about like yeah was, this is my life oh, wow. pre okay. during and post type and you know there's there's yeah there's all these different traumas right there's our childhood mm-hmm. ones that oftentimes added up to going to prison there's all the stuff during prison but then there's after prison including what we we're just talking about Jesus all these rejections trauma, and stuff right you know well, and it's interesting we were talking about the school to prison pipeline well there's also what they call the trauma to prison pipeline mm-hmm. okay and then again like you're saying the traumas of prison and you know loosely throughout the nation it's kind of colloquially called the you know, post-incarceration syndrome mm-hmm. and, and we're dealing with two things really one the effects of trauma but then two uh, the effects of institutionalization mm-hmm. long-term incarceration so it's kind of kind of the combination of two um i think that's one of my areas of interest i'm doing immediately mm-hmm. but i'm kind of also like working in two other areas mm-hmm. um one is I'm currently uh, teaching at the women's prison. Mm-hmm. Uh, last semester, I taught research design. And then oh. this semester, uh, for Operation Restoration, I'm doing an evaluation on the college program. Mm-hmm. But I told them, here's how I want to do it. I want it to be participatory action research, which means basically last semester, I trained students in research. And then we're going to design the evaluation on the college program together. And then we're going to basically um, – uh, run the actual uh uh it's gonna have to be surveys versus interviews because Mm -hmm. of covid and then we're going to analyze the data together and then write it up together so that's what participatory action research again the whole nothing without us uh, about us without us Mm -hmm. and uh, and it's just recognizing that uh you know that they're going to have insights and um that an outsider, me being a male, mm-hmm. me being having done my time in the north, that you know I'm not necessarily going to have, even though I'm formally incarcerated. Mm-hmm. And then two, it just respects them as knowledge producers, respects yeah. them as you know, gives them an opportunity also as a student to actually, hey, let's use what you're learning now yeah, too create, together, create something. So I'm in the middle of that. So participatory action program evaluation, and then the uh, other thing I'm looking at is a kind of a project that I've been working on for a while now is just. Um, uh, the disparity between worker wage and student wage mm. for people inside. So what we run into is we just run into problems of enrollment and retention. So mm-hmm. basically people just find that they can't live on a student wage and so they don't start college or they like, – So you're talking about incarcerated people. Incarcerated, yeah. Wait, so yeah, there yeah. is a student wage because we never had a student wage. So now this is – a lot of places do a lot and some don't. And okay. it's interesting if they don't, then a lot mm-hmm. of times it makes it more equitable where it's not a situation, right? Mm-hmm. But if they do, what they end up doing a lot of times is the lowest wage ends up being student wage. Mm-hmm. Then if you're a worker for the institution, you, you make higher. Or if they have yeah. an industry jobs and even make more. Yeah. So then people are put into – here again, points of intervention. We have this opportunity while people are incarcerated to make this college – intervention you know but if we're putting this situation in where people don't you know they don't have money they don't have anyone who helps them they don't want to have to be go with the illegal route and hustle well you know a lot of times we're never going to give them that opportunity to have this college education because they're going to go work in uh yeah. you know worker wage jobs plates. and again you can say well you know they should get skin in the game sacrificed yada 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 but no i mean we're wanting to reach as many people as we can well, and also right? you know a lot of people, it needs to be equitable right i mean uh, you know people might not think about the difference between having you know 25 dollars a month for yep. all your sort of extra supplies and having 90 dollars a month for all your extra supplies and you know as somebody who 
often was uh, unemployable on mm-hmm. the inside because I was usually on somebody's uh, shit list. Mm. But, um, you know, I, I would have to, you know, I'd be like broke. I'd, I'd turn to my homie. I'd be like, yo, man, like we got to get some business here. Because I, I, you know, I might do some somebody's uh, like legal work or right. some uh, some portraits or whatever. Like, mm-hmm. give me some portrait mm-hmm. work, you know. And so he'd go hustle it up. And then but we'd always see me broke at the same time. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but, you know, 30 bucks a month goes a long way, yeah, makes a huge uh, difference. you know, versus yep. like zero bucks a month. And, you know, and there's this assumption that everyone's got this mother on the outside who puts money on your books. But as we know, I mean, that's realistically what, yep. maybe like a third of the folks, you know, got that. And even the folks who have that, I mean, all of a sudden it's like, oh, well, then mom has to take in a nephew. And yeah. so, you know, yeah. the phones are no longer available. And uh, it's just it's a matter of equity we run into. And uh yeah, I, I don't know, uh, Bruce. So, that's so are you looking at some particular institutions, or are you just um, still at the kind of right now? I'm conceptualized. on the, the conceptualization mm-hmm. of it. I mean, I ran into that running the college program mm-hmm. is I think one of the reasons I know this right is I ran into this being the issue mm-hmm. where I would go through all the work in high school transcripts, get people admitted, mm-hmm. then they wouldn't start right. Yeah. Or um, in the summers, then I would we would lose students, and maybe they come back, maybe they wouldn't right. right? And uh, again, getting the voices on the ground of people there. So they have some places that have done like uh, pilot studies, mm-hmm. uh, focus group before they started the college program. Guess what issue came up? Mm-hmm. It's like, hey, if we become college students, we're going to lose on the worker wage. Mm-hmm. So they came up with the solution mm-hmm. versus starting a program, then later have to fix the problems they create. Okay, abolitionist principle there. Uh, why create something we'll have to fix later? But so what they did is they like some places started uh, incentive pay. What it came down to is, okay, so again, we don't want to give somebody something free. So it came down to uh, if they had to, they paid them a little extra by attendance and then by GPA at the mm-hmm. end of the semester. So weekly attendance, they would get, you know, some extra money and then by GPA. So again, what it came down to incentive pay for people being in college that kept them in there, secured them as students versus yeah. leaving the student wage to go get a workforce right. wage. Yeah. And it's like. I mean, let's be real. Like nobody is going to go through all the hassle just for the dollar yeah. a day. You know what I mean? Like they want to do it, but they also just want to be able to survive and they have to make these tough rock and hard place type choices. Exactly. Yep. Well, dude, you know, I definitely encourage you to keep working with these incarcerated mm. folks to become researchers because yes. I'm going to keep working trying to create some some jobs for people because yes. I definitely could use yeah, some are. support. Uh, I'm, I'm working on a few different projects right now with some different people. I'm, I'm really blessed to be uh, to have researchers who want to you know, work with us and, nice. and can nerd out and, um, you know, got some IRBs in place. Okay. I'm actually doing a, doing a research uh, project on IRBs. <laughs> so get ready uh, really, for that. I'd like to hear about that. Actually. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. you know, uh, so, you know, as you know, like uh, an institutional review board, mm-hmm. uh, when you do human subjects research, right. uh, every IRB that, that, that does uh, research around prisoners needs to, have a, needs to have a prisoner advocate, yeah, right? right? And so now of all, not, not every research uh, institution is you know doing stuff around prisons, but we do know that mm-hmm. it exists, and you know there's certainly hundreds of, of places that are approving this. How many of those prisoner advocates are actually sort of like legitimate prisoner advocates? Yeah. How many of them are formally incarcerated? How many of them, whatever, maybe teach a class once mm-hmm. upon Ta- a time? Mm-hmm. You know, Ta- or maybe they're the, ones. Yeah, or they something. might be the art teacher or whatever. Or mm-hmm. They may uh, be a professor who whatever. At one point, did a, a a project on prisons, you know, in the seventies or something. Mm. And so trying to figure out whether or not, um, the people who are fulfilling these roles are actually fulfilling the charge that's in the federal law, which for folks that don't know, 
the basis of federal law around human subject research comes out of the Nuremberg trials, comes out of the experience of Nazi Germany and, and other nations that have terrible, uh, you know, histories that are that are now, including this country, mm-hmm. right, and doing uh, experiments on whether it be the Tuskegee Airmen right. or or people in prison. So there's lots of uh, of, of terrible hi- histories and some things as we know. Right in Arkansas now, they did experiments on on ivermectin mm. uh, with people like, oh, does it work or not? And COVID, mm-hmm. and so there's lots of things that folks have been trying to evade in terms of like research. They mm-hmm. call it like a program instead. And it's like, no, nah, this is human subject research. Right, right. Uh, right now, in like New Orleans public schools, the 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 children uh, are in a research uh, 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 protocol, and people don't even know it. So they're able to get uh, mm-hmm. free testing. The kids. I know this as a parent of a public school kid and, you know, as someone who's on an IRB who also reads fine print and Mm -hmm. all that. So they're doing this thing called pooled testing, which makes sense, right? Like where we need to go, uh, you know, whether it be employers or families, like, can we test our whole family, right? right? Oh, I'm going to buy the pooled test. Okay, well, there's three of us, two of us, five of us, whatever. Mm -hmm. But at some point, the pool's too big, Right. Like mm-hmm. Tulane could not do a pooled test and then submit it to a lab. Like here's 3000 samples. Right. Right. It's going to get watered down. You're going to have too many like false positives yeah. and negatives or whatever. And so they're they're doing pooled testing amongst the, the, the schools, which might be a good thing. Um, I don't know. Right. Uh, and how big is the pools? I don't know. Is it literally just like one classroom of kids like for a pool? Because basically, if you get a positive of let's say these 20 kids, right? Then you, have to you then go back and do individuals, yeah. right? And so in theoretically, and again, I didn't review this, or I don't mm-hmm. know who, I've been trying to get a hold of the Department of Health that said they were gonna call me back, did not. Right. Um, you know, theoretically, they're gonna have enough sample to then do the individual ones after. But even as my own daughter pointed out when we were just casually saying it, it's like, well, people will get a negative test and think they're good. But maybe it just got watered down so much, the whole pool is negative. Mm-hmm. But meanwhile, someone in there is positive, And then they're going to go passing around and stuff with their negative sort of result. You'd have to look in and see if that watered down is really a concept or not. I mean, they can test literally sewage water to determine if there's presence of COVID, right? Um, well, all I know is from what I read. And again, yeah. like all I'm saying is... But that's now, it, from right. a, now from a from a, a vulnerable population's advocacy Hello. point, yeah, you good, have children good. involved who can't yeah. have their own level of consent. Thank you, you. You have you have uh, parents of of people uh, who are the parents of these children who should be giving have, consent for. Yeah, them. and some have literacy issues. Some maybe have language yep. issues. Uh, and gotcha. so, was that presented in in multiple languages? I didn't see it in multiple languages. Mm-hmm. You know, was there a there should be someone who you yeah. can contact? More there was not. Yeah. Right. So I'm doing all this like back end research. You should be getting an explanation when you're yeah. asking questions. And if too. I can't get the answers yeah. as someone who has a law degree who's mm. on an IRB, right? Then what about just like you know regular old so and so who's just like oh it's free testing and yeah. you literally was in the fine print this pooled testing thing wow. i'd never heard of pooled testing yeah. until i read it and you know it is an experimental thing that it says in there now granted it does say they may be given a pooled test okay maybe they're not doing a research project i don't know right but like this is the level of informed consent that mm-hmm. has to happen that you know you're just going to use our students as as like oh you can opt in for free testing yeah, and, wow. and they wouldn't do that to like uh, you know some some upper class uh, prep schools or whatever. Mm-hmm. They do it with with the with you know with the the children in, in these charter schools, these public schools. New Orleans is a city like ours that 
you know, that, that gets, uh, you know, the, the shitty end of the stick for, for generations. Mm-hmm. And so, I don't know. I just, I feel like, you know, research is a good thing, but it really needs to be above board and people need to know what they're, they're opting yeah. into. And you could have done it with adults. You could have done it with workplaces, you know, but you have this handy pool whether it be incarcerated people or, or children in yeah. schools, like, oh, let's let's study it. Let's mm-hmm. like, well, you can't do that. That's, it's right there and you can kind of pull the wool yeah. over the eyes so you can it's get like your data. It's like there's laws about yep. it. So back to the point about prisoner advocates mm-hmm. and the research study, you know, the, from what we can gather, right. I may be one of the 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 abnormalities of That's being a formerly incarcerated prisoner advocate on an IRB, right? And I mm-hmm. only got this spot because I reached out to Tulane and said, hey. Mm-hmm. You know, I was on another IRB uh, that's a, an institute. And so, so what we're then going to probably end up doing is making a recommendation right. to uh, revise the federal code to create because there's no qualifications for prisoner advocate. Gotcha. That's the problem. OK. Right. Okay. And so to adhere to the spirit of the law, there needs to be some kind of credentialing qualifications. What qualifications are you guys going to try to shoot for? Well, you know, uh, you know, forming incarcerated could be one of them. You know, some level of, of, of degree could be one of them. Some sort of like, uh, you know, uh, having certain maybe classes under your belt uh, that could, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, you're not going to just like let any old person. And I guess the thing we want to know is like, are you letting any old person? Right. Is it right. just like, oh, you're the pastor of the prison. Right. And I don't know. Are you sort of in position uh, sort of academically to be reviewing yeah, this, this, research, right? this COVID level mm-hmm. pool testing kind of construct, right. for example, you know? And so now with all that said, there's mm-hmm. definitely some research that kind of goes a little bit over my head. <laughs> uh, but my job is not to figure out whether or not yeah, the, right, right. The, the, the chemo treatment is actually going to be legitimate or not. It's mm-hmm. really about whether or not the, you know, the people being uh, subjected to the testing or, you know, are, are giving informed consent, informed et cetera, consent, right, risk right. and such. So, um, I don't know. So, well, I, I think okay, I think well, the, the nice. you know, the, the credentials could could be even they could still be, I think, vague, perhaps, mm-hmm. but point to the fact that um, there needs to be some sort of legitimacy to what gives you the right to sort of like be this advocate. Yeah. And, for example, like, you know, under the law, when you're when you're filing a class action or something, you know, you can you can do things like organizational standing. Mm-hmm. Right. Because uh, like. To you know, to file a lawsuit, you gotta have, be like individually harmed, and, and you know, a classic example would be like Roe v. Wade. Yeah, now, okay. if you have a situation where the the plaintiff will always be mooted out, right? A pregnancy mm-hmm. is only gonna last so many months, gotcha. right? And so the lawsuit be like, oh, sorry, ma'am, you're not pregnant anymore, and someone have to file over. So then you say, okay, well, who's an institution? Who's an organization that can take this case? And you know, whether it be NAACP, mm-hmm. ACLU, you name it. So like, so vote. Uh, who we represent, who we are as former incarcerated people, including so many, you know, incarcerated, uh, you know, connections and members, et cetera. You know, we're in position to be able to to make a claim to have organizational standing on issues that maybe, for instance, people on probation might like cycle in and out, cycle in and out. Mm -hmm. And so an individual plaintiff might not work. Makes sense. Gotcha. So going back to the prisoner advocate scenario, right? Like, is there... um, you know, some criteria. So like to have organizational standing, there is some criteria around that. And we can possibly transfer some of that same language over into that realm. Okay, nice. Um, nice. And, you know, and and again, like, who knows what kind of research is being requested or done around the country. Mm -hmm. And I've only seen, you know, so many things. Um, But I've often found myself, you know, making recommendations to researchers where they're just like really thankful, like, Mm -hmm. oh, 
you're like, look, I want this thing to work. Yeah. But I also understand the pressures of whether it be parole officers or wardens or, you know, and you think that this is going to be so smooth and, and great and everyone's going to be, you know, above board, but mm -hmm. maybe not so much. And also you might want people to admit things that might come back to haunt them at the parole board, for instance. Right. So like, let's handle that with care. Mm -hmm. And so, mm -hmm. um, so it's been really, uh, you know, a great oh, cool. opportunity right. that I don't always get a, uh, you know, a chance to engage in because not, you know, so, so, so few things really are that prison research. Mm -hmm. um, but I think if we had folks around the country that are representing in this in this level, you know, we really would be up in our game and, nice. and really stopping, you know, the potential horror stories uh, that do happen. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. so that's something that you know I've been working on with with uh, you know along with 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 Ashley and and, and Andrea with our our research team around healthcare in prisons and jails. Just a little mm, nice. side idea. Um, that we had, uh, but you know, I, I think to me that's also just something like when you're around good people, smart people, and you've got like a mixture of ideas, you mm -hmm. can take on all these different little projects, kind of piecemeal, one thing's on the back burner, front burner, side burner. Right. You know? And the, the cumulative effect, a lot of good can be done. Mm -hmm. So. Cool. Well, dude, nice. I am so glad that you came through. Thank you. Uh, we yeah. could touch on, on so many nerdy topics, <laughs> and I feel like I could talk to you for days, mm -hmm. and I definitely really? want to have you back, but uh, but Love keep it. doing what you're doing, man, Thank and you. really appreciate it. Appreciate your work, and uh, thanks for having me. All right, well, shout okay. out to Mike, and uh, he's got his team is still in the NFL playoffs, <laughs> along with Norris's team. My team is, is done for, but uh, we love you all, and we out. <laughs> we need each other.